Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is The Mantelpiece of Mercy by Pastor Sean Wood. Jesus, you are enough. And you are the one that satisfies. And you are the one who is all we will ever need. Amen this morning. Amen. Fathers, we prepare our hearts to come around your word. We do pray that our hearts would be opened. And we ask in your wonderful name that you would speak to each one of us. Amen. Amen. Uh, as the teenagers are meeting Steve and heading out the back, teenagers, if that's you, 12 to 17, wives, you have to hang on to your husbands. <laughs> you can't send them out. Amen. This, this morning as we come around God's Word, if you'd like to meet me in Exodus chapter 9, we're going to begin in Exodus chapter 9 and then we're going to move into the New Testament. Um, and this morning I want to talk about a subject which sounds very deep and theological, but it's not that hard to understand at all. Uh, there's a biblical doctrine called election. And it's not something like you go to the polls and vote, but what that, what that Greek word means is to choose. And the problem is that the minute I say the word election, the minute I say choose in regards to God, we, we cast our minds back to gym class when we were playing dodgeball at the end of gym class and they would select two captains and you had to pick your teams and everybody picked according to the skills that rested inside of everybody. That's not the election that speaks of God. What we will see today is that God has placed each one of us on the mantelpiece of his mercy to showcase us. In Tasmania, uh, I noticed some, one difference between Queensland and Tasmania is all the houses in Tasmania are filled with fireplaces. <laughs> so when I say mantelpiece, you're probably thinking, what on earth is this guy talking about? But uh, a mantelpiece is something that sits above the fireplace and on the mantelpiece is where you would display everything or, or everything that was valuable to you, everything that was most precious to you, you know, photos of me and all that sort of stuff you would, you would, you, you would put on the mantelpiece. And, and today, as we unpack God's word, today I don't want you to lose sight of God placing you on the mantelpiece to exhibit his mercy Amen. as a showcase of his mercy. You see, when we talk about things like election, we, we get caught up in silliness and we lose the purpose. I want to start with a parable this morning and then we'll do a little bit of a recap. If you'll afford me a little bit of license, I don't tell parables like Jesus does, but uh, if you afford me a bit of license, imagine for a moment that I have five very dear friends, (laughs) an overestimation, I get it. But as we uh, begin the parable, uh, five friends that I love and care for very much, again, an overestimation. However, uh, these five friends, I learn, have hatched a plot and have conceived in their heart that they're going to rob a bank. I become aware of the plan of these guys to rob the bank and immediately, immediately I come to my friends and I plead with them and I plead with them and I plead with them. Do you guys not know the consequences? What are you thinking? This isn't going to end well. You're headed for destruction. But I plead and I plead and I plead, but they have set their hearts to go their own way. 
Finally, the day comes when they've decided they're going to rob the bank and I turn up and the minute I turn up, they all panic and they run for the van and, and I chase after him and the chubby one of my friends can't run as fast as the other and I'm able to wrestle him to the ground just as the other four jump into the van and drive off. The other four will reach the bank that day, but things don't go to plan. When they get in there, screens come down and a guard reaches for his gun and they shoot the guard in a panic and he dies. And four of my friends spend a horrible amount of time in jail. And the guy that I wrestled to the ground gets up and dusts himself off and thinks he's lucky stars he didn't get in the van that day. Hold on to that parable, but let me ask you a couple of questions. Those four guys that are in jail, is it my fault that they're there? Hmm. But here's the most important question this morning, the fifth friend. Do you think it's his place to stand up and puff his chest out and boast about how pious he is because he wasn't in the van that day and he didn't rob the bank? No, 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 no. He shouldn't do that at all. What he should do is come and bow at my feet and worship me that I had mercy on him. Again, an overestimation because I'm God, right? uh, Didn't get one amen. But, but, but I hope you hold on to that parable as we work our way through because as we stumble into Exodus chapter 9, we stumble into some passages which can be very confronting. And we've been talking about Pharaoh and we've been talking about the Egyptians and we've been talking about the hard heart of Pharaoh. And we've discussed that sometimes we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Sometimes we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes we don't know who did it. But we know this. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he had bent his own way to go his own way. What we lose sight of is just the fact that God doesn't wipe Pharaoh off the face of the planet means he's merciful, right? And as we work our way through the Exodus story, I was pondering this this week. I wonder if this sounds familiar. Imagine for a moment you could go back a few thousand years and you find yourself in the wilderness. And on the horizon, there's hundreds of thousands of people walking towards you. And you're thinking to yourself, what on earth finds hundreds of thousands of people in the middle of the wilderness? So you go up and you pull one of them aside and say, what's going on here with you guys? What would they say? What would an Israelite say to you at that point in time? They might say something like this. I wonder whether it will go a little bit like this. I was in a foreign land, living under the cloud and shadow of death, enslaved by a master that treated us cruelly. They would go on and say that while we were in the foreign land and we had no hope, God came to us. I'll repeat that. God came to us. And under the covering of the blood of the lamb, he brings us out by his power and we're on the way to a glorious place. I've just told you the story of the Israelites, but I've just told you the story that should be everybody's story in this room. Is that we're in a foreign land, living under the shadow of darkness, living under the shadow of death, enslaved without any hope of being set free. And God came to us. And under the covering of the blood of the Lamb, he brought us out and we're heading to a glorious place. You see, the story of the Bible is not just the story of Pharaoh and it's not just the story of Israel. It's the story of us all. It's the wonderful story of how God relates 
to every single one of us. If you've made your way to Exodus chapter 9, let's, let's recap briefly and then arrive at the verses that I want to deal with today. What we will find is uh, in Exodus chapter 9, there are some passages that I'm going to read out that are then quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 9. And everybody thinks Romans chapter 9, it's hard to understand. It's not hard to understand at all. In fact, Romans chapter 9 is very easy to understand, but it's a confronting truth we find in there. But what brings us to this point, if we could recap the story briefly, and I wonder if we can find ourselves in this story anywhere, that there was a time when Israel was in Egypt and everything looked like it was lost, right? They had found themselves enslaved for many years and it looked like all hope was lost. But God was right in it, remember? There was bad days for Israel, but God was right there. God was preserving them. God was keeping them. His plan of redemption had been set in motion. And we know that God calls Moses after. After a little bit of a hiccup, he calls Moses to go back. Called Moses at the age of 80. What does that tell us? Nobody retires, you get refired, not retired. <clears throat> For those that are here, that are, I don't know anybody here that's 80, um, but if that's you this morning, uh, God doesn't retire anybody. Uh, but as we move through the story, we also move through the story of Pharaoh and God. We're starting to be introduced to the plagues. And the definition of a plague is a blow or it is a hit or it is a pestilence that comes and unsettles us. I'm not going to answer this question. You can answer this inside of yourselves this morning, but after giving you the definition of a plague, I wonder for a moment whether COVID-19 was a plague. COVID-19 was a very unsettling time, not only for the church, but for many people outside of the church. In fact, we are still feeling the ripples of, through the economies and everything that's happened. It's uncomfortable. God has a way of making us uncomfortable. It's God's job to make you uncomfortable. As we work through the story and we begin to see that God sets a division, he sets a separation. The difference between Israel, God's people, and Egypt is God has set a division. He has set redemption, that word says. And that's the difference between us. As we work our way through this story, what I hope is that each and every one of us will see that at one point in time, in fact, we were Pharaoh. And we're not actually told the eternal destiny of Pharaoh. We, we don't know what happened. We can assume, but we don't really know. But I do know this. Pharaoh was afforded the same mercy as everybody else. God pleaded with Pharaoh. God unsettled Pharaoh and he came to all of Egypt and displayed his power so that they might know that he was and is the one true God. Then we find ourselves... In today's passage, chapter 9, and, and we come to the seventh plague of hail. And this one's going to get really personal now because they're going to start losing livestock. But there's a few differences that happen throughout this plague. And one of the differences, one of the major differences is this. Uh, when the plague of hail is announced, there are, is a huge portion of Egyptians, it says, that fear the word of the Lord and they go and get their livestock and their servants out of the field. Now the Egyptians are like, Pharaoh's going cray-cray. We're, we're out of here. We're going to look after ourselves. We're, uh, remember that there's a portion of Egyptians that go with Israel yes. when they leave. 
Verse 14 of chapter 9, for this time I will send, says God, all my plagues on you yourself or on your heart in the Hebrew. I will send my plagues on your heart. What's God doing? He's got the spade out and he's digging up the foundations of Pharaoh's heart. All those things that you trust in, all of your security, all of your prosperity, all of your comfort, I'm going to dig it up and unsettle it. All of those 80-odd gods and goddesses that you've based your life on, I'm going to bring them to nothing so that you may know what? I am the one true God. Hold on to that thought for a moment. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. None like me in all the earth. Verse 15. I love this verse. God says, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. What's God saying? I could have taken you out. But he chooses not to. Why 10 plagues, right? Why not just jump to the plague? Why not just jump to number 10? Let's save a bit of time. Let's get on the caboose and get the train rolling. Let's just cut the number 10, get this dealt with and get out. <laughs> no. There is time. Can I tell you that sometimes the most obstinate, resistant people cave to the mercy of God? Sometimes it's the hardest heart. Uh, this, we, we actually move into our Reaching Out series next week. We've got a question as we move our way in. Kind of applies a little bit today. Here's one to ponder for the next few weeks. Saul of Tarsus, when he was converted, who preached the gospel to him? No one. God interrupted that man. He used Ananias to come and pray for him, yes. But God interrupted that. The most, if you could put your finger on any man in the first century and say God could never save that guy, it was Saul of Tarsus, right? Lord, Lord, who are you? (laughs) Let's keep reading on verse 16. But for this purpose, says God, I have raised you up. For this purpose, I have raised you up. For this purpose, I have caused you to stand, to show you my power, or that you may clearly see my power. I've allowed you to stand. Why 10 plagues? Because I want to plead with your heart, Pharaoh. I want you to see my power, Pharaoh. I want all of Egypt to see my power. But more than that, so that my name may be proclaimed, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 17. You are still exalting yourself. The other major shift in this chapter, because we're not coming back to this chapter once we leave, the other major shift is after the plague, Pharaoh says, I have sinned. (laughs) Okay. I have sinned. God is in the right. Me and my people, says Pharaoh, if you read the chapter to the end, we are in the wrong. And Moses says, I will go and plead with the Lord. But as for you, Pharaoh, I know that you don't yet fear God. There hasn't been a change in your heart. You're saying all the right words. But there hasn't been a change in your heart. But this raises questions and elephants start coming into the room when we read verses like, but for this purpose, I've raised you up. I've raised you up, what, just to make a spectacle of Pharaoh? Just to, just to display your power? Don't forget proclaiming his name in all the... Don't forget, by the time Israel reached the promised land, they've all heard about Israel. 
The reputation of Israel and their God preceded them into the promised land. We've heard what God did to the Egyptians. God has displayed his power and he's not done yet. But this raises questions. Questions like, is God unfair? Remember the parable at the start, right? Was it unfair that four people went and robbed that bank? Was it my fault that four of my friends went and robbed that bank? And we miss the whole purpose. You see, God set his love and his affection and his mercy and his grace and his power and his blessing on a people called Israel. And he did it for one purpose, to send a message to the whole world that he is the powerful God, the loving God, the merciful God. Go to a chapter now, if we can, to Romans chapter 9. I remember when I was in the forestry, I was dealing with guys that were pretty loose, to be honest, uh, most of the time. Um, And forestry coops could be anywhere from 300 to 2,000 hectares. And if you you gave these guys an inch, they'd take a mile. You had to be able to keep these guys kind of under control. 20-odd guys running around the paddock, Um, they can make a mess pretty quickly. And so I had two ways of communicating. The first one was I would tell them all what they had to do. Uh, It might be in the morning, it might be at the night. This is what we're doing, this is how you plant trees, uh, which wasn't rocket science, by the way. Uh, This is how everything has to happen. And I would tell them. And the second thing I would do is I would pick one person in the whole team and make an example of what I just told them. What does that mean? It means if I find one guy doing something wrong, I make him go back and rework. And what does everybody else say? Oh, he's not mucking around, that guy. He's going to send us back and make us... But if somebody's doing the right thing, I make an example of one person. But what I'm doing is I'm sending a message to everybody. I want to encourage you today. God is preaching a sermon through you everywhere you go. He wants the world out there to know, I loved Helen. So I love everyone, right? I I love Ross. Crazy surfer dude. If you can love surfers, right, you can love anybody. (laughs) We had a surfer here last week from Ulladulla. It's a small world. And so God is preaching a sermon everywhere you go. He's putting you on the mantelpiece. He wants the whole world to see his love through you. Sounds a little bit like this if we get to Romans chapter 9. Need a little bit of context before we go any further. Romans chapter 9, uh, uh, theologians debate this. I actually think, I, I take my hat off to those that go to school. Um, if God calls you to Bible college, please go. If God calls you to pursue intellectual uh, Bible study, please do so. I think there's great value in that. But sometimes I think we overcomplicate stuff and sometimes I think we overtalk stuff. Um, and so sometimes what the Bible wants to tell us is sitting right there on the page. And so let's just read, let's take the context first and then ask ourselves, what is Paul trying to tell us here? The context of Romans is simply this. The whole book of Romans is the message of the gospel. 
from chapter 1 to, to chapter 16, it's the message of the gospel. It starts off with the fact that we all need God because we're under wrath. By the way, you can't fully understand mercy until you get a full grip on wrath. Yes. Pharaoh, you'll understand my mercy when I pour out my wrath, right? Ro- Romans makes this clear. You are either in Christ or you are under God's wrath. That, that's welcome to the gospel. Go, he goes on and explains, and I don't have the time to go through the whole lot, but he goes on and explains that a relationship with God is now available through Christ, not only to Jews, but to Gentiles, to everybody. It's available by faith, through grace, all those sorts of things. Then we get to Romans chapter 8, which is right before Romans chapter 9, and sometimes everybody runs off and says, this whole chapter is about foreknowledge and predestination. That's not what it's about at all. Romans chapter 8 is all about our security in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus and we are sealed by the precious Holy Spirit. That's the message of Romans chapter 8. And it ends with the nine inseparable nors. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Neither height nor depth. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Then what Paul does for 9, 10 and 11, he puts some brackets in and he says, now we need to deal with the gospel concerning Israel. Because Israel had a problem. Israel thought, hang on a second, we're already in relationship with God. Israel says, you want us to kind of adopt this Jesus and come into a new covenant? What happened to the old one? What happened to all the promises in the Old Testament? What happened to all the promises of God? What happened to everything that the prophets foretold? And what Paul wants Israel to know is, God hasn't swept you aside. He has fulfilled every one of those in the person of Jesus. And we know that because verse 6 of chapter 9 says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. What Paul is saying is God hasn't failed you guys. God hasn't excluded you guys. He has included you. But he wants Israel to know something. Overarchingly, he wants Israel to know that a relationship with God is not about the clothes you wear. It's not about who your mum and dad is. And it's actually never been about that. Let's read on. Here's some examples we might know and we'll take them as we work our way through. Then we'll get to the verses from from, uh, Exodus chapter 9. Verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. You've got to grasp what Paul's saying here. Paul says, though they were not yet born. Twins. By the way, I'm going to digress. Twins are trouble. Twins are double the trouble. (laughs) Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that... You've got to grab this one now. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. His purpose of election. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Ah. Now we're starting to get to the bone tax. Verse 12. She was told, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. What's that mean? It means this. Before Esau and Jacob were ever born, God says, the older one will serve the younger. And that shouldn't have happened. Esau was in line for the blessing. Esau was the one that should have inherited the covenant blessings and the promises. He was the firstborn. And so he should have received all of the relationship with God. Don't forget, by the way, a couple of things we need to know about Esau. We're not told his eternal destiny either. And don't forget that Esau was the first one that says, you know what, I'm going to sell God out for a pot of stew. Jacob wasn't that good a cook. Verse 13, as it is written, 
Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Oh, there's a punch in the face. God said, what? The word hated there is the same word that Jesus uses when he says, unless you hate your father, mother, brother, it speaks about rejection. It speaks about priorities. But God is actually telling us a message through Jacob and Esau, a message that it started all the way back then and it hasn't stopped. And we're going to get another couple of examples before we go any further. And it raises questions and it brings elephants into the room and we're going to deal with both of those elephants. But it's kind of like this. A relationship with God is based on his mercy. What, did, what was there inside of Jacob that meant he deserved God's mercy? Nothing. What's the message to us? What is there, what credentials do you bring that mean you deserve God's mercy? Paul has a habit of talking to himself. He asks himself questions and answers them. And he's going to do that now. He's a little bit... Verse 14, what shall we say then, he says. So he goes on and says, well, God's unfair, right? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, he says. God's not unjust. God's not unfair. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so then it depends. This is the really crux of the whole chapter, really. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Who shows or has mercy. You know, the reality is um, God treats me really unfairly. He does. Because if God treated me the way I deserved, I wouldn't be here today. It's because he's merciful. Let's keep reading on. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, now here comes the quote, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And now there's another question. First we've dealt with unfairness, now Paul deals with responsibility. We live in an age today that is running as fast as they can away from responsibility. And so everybody will look for a back door when it comes to responsibility, right? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? How can he still hold me responsible? If God hardens whom he will, how much work did he have to put in with Pharaoh? Very little. But if God hardens whom he wills and has mercy, how can God find fault? How can God hold me responsible? Paul says, well, for who can resist his will? I love Paul's answer. We've missed the response, remember? If we go back to the parable... Don't forget that every one of us in this room are that fifth person that God has set his love, mercy and affection on. What should the response be? We shouldn't be dragging God into our court of law, asking him questions. What does Paul say? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? We'll get to verse 22 in a moment. 
But what Paul is saying, this isn't the first time we've hit this. If you read through your Bible, you get to the book of Job. Something really interesting happens in the book of Job. Everybody knows what happens to Job on the outside, right? But we're given a perspective that Job doesn't have. We're given a perspective where we get to see the spiritual side. We get to see that this is all happening to Job because, remember why? Because the enemy comes to God and says, you know what? Job only loves you because of all the blessings you give him. He doesn't really like you, God. He doesn't really love you. If you take away all the blessings that you give him, he will certainly curse you. And what happens? All of it gets taken away. He has three friends that come and say, you've sinned. You've got to be careful with that because God rebukes them later. His three friends spend a long time saying, look, Job, you've obviously sinned, mate. You just need to repent, get over it, get on the horse, get back on the train. God rebukes them for that. And God could have shown Job the spiritual dimension, but instead he challenges Job's right to even ask. And when we get to chapter 38, God says, where were you, Job? Where were you? when I weighed the mountains. Who are we to question God? What should our response be? We should fall at his feet. Because he had mercy on us. Paul says to Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, by whom I am the chief... And if you'll afford Paul a little bit of grace, he hadn't met me when he said that. I I could sum my testimony up very easily, just the same as Israel. I was in a foreign land. I was that far removed from God in a family. The only mention of God in the family that I came out of was when we wanted to use the Lord's name as a swear word. God came to me and brought me to himself. And he took this sinful rat bag and showed him mercy. And can I tell you, mercy will melt your heart. What God wants Israel to know in Romans chapter 9, what God wants all of us to know in the story of Exodus and in our own stories is simply this. My mercy and my love should compel you to fall at my feet and worship me. We don't know all the answers. Let's finish with verse 22. Verse 22 is going to help us out today. Verse 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? You can't understand mercy without wrath. All the way back in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, uh, Genesis chapter 6 says this, and I wonder if we're too far removed from this today. Genesis chapter 6 says that the corruption and evil in man's heart had become so bad that God was grieved that he'd ever made mankind. I I wonder whether there's a huge difference today. And so God says, I'm going to send judgment. I'm going to pour out my wrath. But he takes this weird little guy. It says that Noah found favour or Noah found grace. And he says, build an ark. And I love chapter 7 of Genesis. Chapter 7 says that Noah and his family went into the ark and God said, come, (laughs) not go. God was already in there. 
And then God, it says, shut them in. There's Romans chapter 8 for you right there. And God poured out all of his wrath and every person inside of that ark was safe. Fast forward many thousands of years, friends, I tell you, there will be a day when God will pour out his wrath and those who are in the ark, Jesus, will be safe. You know, when we get to the Tower of Babel, this is a digression, but it's an interesting one. When we get to the Tower of Babel, we all think that everybody, Nimrod was the one that built the Tower of Babel. He was the one that started it. And he, you have to remember that by the time they're building the Tower of Babel, the flood is fresh in their mind. We remember what God did. And we all think, well, they built a, they built a tower so they could reach God, and there is an application there for sure. But Josephus gives us a really interesting point that I had missed until I'd read it. He says, no, 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 they built the tower because the flood was fresh in their mind, and Nimrod is saying, you won't drown me, God. I'll build a tower high enough that I can get out of your wrath. I'm here to tell you, friends, you cannot escape God's wrath unless you are in Jesus Christ. You don't come into Jesus apart from God's mercy. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Prepared for destruction. Prepared by who? Let's read the next verse and see if we get a contrast. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his, of his glory. God wants to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared. God didn't prepare the first ones. They prepared themselves. Friends, I think we have lost our place at the feet of a God that has lavished his mercy on us. That we've allowed the majesty of God to be reduced. As I close, I want to read a passage from John 5, which again speaks about this subject and I love this account. Verse four, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, not one you'd usually swim in, but there was a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed, roofed colonnades. Verse 3, in these, underline these words, in these lay a multitude of invalids. Blind, lame and paralysed. Verse 5. And for everybody who doesn't have an NIV translation or has the ESV, you'll realise that verse 4 is missing. Because it tells us what the pool is. That there were invalids that were lined up on the banks of the pool and that an angel would come down and stir the pool and the first one in got healed. My Bible goes from verse 3 to verse 5. Verse 5, one man was there, one man was there, one man was there. No, 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 no. There's a multitude, right? No, no, no. It says here that there was one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. As we go through this story, ask yourself what this man says to Jesus. Does he get up and walk to Jesus? Does he yell out to Jesus? What does he say to Jesus? Oh, this is really interesting. And, and when Jesus saw him, 
Oh, wow. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus isn't looking for information, by the way. Have a listen to the guy's answer. Do you want to be healed? This is like a no-brainer. It's like, duh, arm Jesus. No, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. When the water is stirred and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up and take up your bed and walk. And when I was reading that, I asked myself the question, Jesus could have gone in and he could have healed the whole lot. Why doesn't he? By healing one, he preaches a sermon to the multitude. By healing the one, by showing his power and his mercy and his grace to the one, he says to them all, I am the healer. And by God's work in you, he's saying to the world, I love you, I have mercy on you, and you can come home. If you're a God chaser here this morning, stop. He's not running away from you. Stop running and turn around, he's right there. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray that each one of us would would go up to the temple like the men that you told us and that we would fall on our knees and beat upon our chest and yell out to heaven, have mercy on us, O God. I thank you, Father, because there was a time when I was in a foreign land There was a time when I was living under the cloud of darkness and there was a time when I was enslaved and you came to me and you showed me mercy and you melted my heart with your love. We are so thankful for Jesus. Father, I pray that through the life of every individual in this room that you would make known the riches of your glory. I pray that through this church, Lord God, through us as a body, that you would make known the riches of your mercy, the riches of your love, the riches of your grace. Father, I pray that each one of us would find ourselves at your feet with our arms stretched out, worshipping the one who has had mercy and saved us. In your wonderful name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.